Well, thank you for coming this Sunday. It's what I've affectionately coined Lay Elder, Lay Elder Takeover Day. <laughs> a little rough around the edges, but filled with a lot of heart. And as we do so, we are violating a sacred tradition that's emerged in all of Christendom. We are not allowing this to be Youth Pastor Sunday. So, <laughs> my apologies, Zach. Over the past um, couple of years, as we've grown, had to be separated because of this act of social distancing, as we've reflected, um, Blue Valley has had new ways to try and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, and through these different avenues of gathering and celebrating the Lord's Supper, the Lord has really done a work in my heart and just really transformed my own approach to this ordinance. And so this morning, as we prepare to take the elements, I'd like for us just to reflect a bit upon the Lord's Supper. I'd like to do so in a different way than what we're typically used to doing. I'd like to look at the Lord's Supper in the context of the Last Supper. So the Lord's Supper was given by Christ as part of the Last Supper, and every one of the Gospels gives a different view. So we're going to do a sprint this morning, so I hope you're ready to run. We're going to wash ourselves in Scripture. We're going to take a look at how the Last Supper is constructed in each Gospel, and through that, I think it will give us a new picture of what the Lord is doing and sharing and telling the disciples as part of the Last Supper, and thus as part of the Lord's Supper. So... Let's begin our sprint. In the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark, the authors dedicate a portion of one chapter each, Matthew chapter 26, if you're taking notes, and in the book of Mark, chapter 14. And we're not going to read through this unless, if you're really quick at turning the Bible, you may be able to follow along, but we're going to move quickly. So in the book of Matthew and the book of Mark, the Last Supper is constructed in the exact same way. And there's five elements presented in the Last Supper in both Matthew and Mark. So here's the scene of the Last Supper in both Matthew and Mark. The first element, the disciples have a discussion about the venue for the Passover meal. This is where the Lord tells them to go prepare a place for them to gather and have the Last Supper. The second element, Jesus reveals that one of the disciples will betray him. The third element, we have this rich gathering, it's the institution of the Lord's Supper. Then the fourth element, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. And just as a note here, just as an aside, the um, Gospels of Matthew and Mark also note that the, all the other disciples said, oh, I will never deny you either, Lord. They, they make that little note. So Peter gets the, the, the blunt here. But all the disciples declare, oh, Lord, we will never deny you. And then the final element that we see in Matthew and Mark as part of the Last Supper is that then Jesus departs with them to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. So five simple elements that we see displayed in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark in the Last Supper. Let's go to the book of Luke now. Luke also dedicates a portion of one chapter, chapter 22, to the Last Supper. He includes all of the same five elements that Matthew and Mark did, along with two additional elements. So Luke, briefly, in chapter 22... There's the discussion about the venue for the Passover meal. Then Luke combines the institution of the Lord's Supper and a revelation that one of the disciples will betray him. Then we have a new element. The disciples 
it seems quite randomly, all of a sudden have a dispute over who will be the greatest. <laughs> and then Jesus concludes this little argument with that beautiful quote, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Then we're back to similarities with Matthew and Mark where Jesus foretells Peter's denial. And then another new element in the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus links himself to Isaiah 53, 12, and says, and he was numbered with the transgressors, showing that Jesus was the fulfillment of Scripture. And then finally, we go back to the similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Jesus and the disciples depart to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we go to the book of John. And so, as we've come to see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would expect that John would devote how much to the Last Supper? A portion of one chapter. So we turn to John 13, and then we turn to John 14, and John 15, and then John 16, and John 17, and John devotes five chapters to the Last Supper. So we get this richness here that, that um, in the inspired word that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not include. And it's like, okay, wow, this, there's some... There's some incredible depth here that I need to explore and understand as I am approaching these elements. And so briefly, the book of John includes three of the five elements that the other gospels include, but has a master class of theological richness for us. And so let's briefly go through John. So one of the elements, oh, not, no, not, they're at the venue for the Passover meal. They don't discuss it. And Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Then we receive a revelation that one of the disciples will betray him. And then instead of instituting the Lord's Supper at this moment, what John includes is that Jesus gives a new commandment in chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. So where the other gospels include um, the Lord's Supper, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then Jesus foretells Peter's denial. And then we get just a pouring out of Jesus' heart that we should reflect upon as part of, as our, part of our receiving of the elements. So Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he promises the Holy Spirit, saying, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And then in, later in 15, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then in 15 and 16, he says, the world will hate you, the spirit will guide you, your sorrow will transform into joy, and take heart, for I have overcome the world. And then in chapter 17, we come to the high priestly prayer, where Jesus speaks to the Father, and he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then Jesus and the disciples depart for the Garden of Gethsemane. So as we prepare to receive the elements this morning, I want to offer just three quick points of emphasis about the Lord's Supper and what it should bring to mind as we reflect upon our Lord. The first, the restorative power 
of Christ's word and work. Let's reflect briefly on the Bible's brilliance, just as in its literary construction. You see what Matthew and Mark do is offer this phenomenal pairing in their telling of the Last Supper. So we have this rich institution that's given in the, in the Lord's Supper, and we see that. But then immediately following, we see Christ prophesying that Peter is going to deny him. It's just this unique pairing, this wonderfully rich gathering where Christ is saying, I'm pouring out my blood so that you will be forgiven. And then immediately after, by the way, Peter, you're going to deny me. So I think about this and I think about what the authors are taking us through where we see this contrast, where we see in one moment Christ in his foreknowledge is sharing the table with those he knows are going to abandon him. And he's saying to them, remember me. And it makes me think, are we not so different? As we see this dramatic swing in the disciples' spiritual pendulum, going from this rich celebration of unity with the Lord, then all of a sudden hearing, I am about to be taken to moments of despair, the depths of darkness, I can only imagine what Peter is going to, be, going to be going through in his own life as he sees the creeping darkness. And he's in those moments immediately after he has committed denial. And the Bible says that he went out and he wept bitterly. But are we not so similar to Peter? When we encounter life's moments of despair and darkness, do we not seek to cling to anything that would provide us with sustenance or remind us of life's goodness? Do we not search for anything that will allow us to escape the darkness that we feel creeping in? And when we do find something that offers any measure of satisfaction, do we not keep returning to it because we think it will continue to provide us with solace? So we have a remarkable gift here in the Lord's Supper. Because you can imagine Peter, what would he cling to when he is in the darkest moments of his life? But Christ had spoken to him and given him this institution, this ordinance. When you're in the darkness of your life, Christ says, remember me. And we have this spiritual rhythm where we continue to celebrate it. We do this on a frequent basis because I think, I think the Lord knows that we have to say this so many times to ourselves. We have to write these words on our heart so that at one point, they're fully within us and we believe it. So when we're in the darkness of our own lives, Christ says, remember me, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And I can only imagine Peter, as he continues to repeat this to himself, and it's through this repetition that he finally believes the depths of his freedom, that though I've denied, he told me to remember. He told me to believe. So the Lord's Supper provides the restorative power of Christ's word and work. Second point, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the richness of relationship with Christ. So in social media recently, I saw a post, and it said, um, the number of followers that you have in social media does not dictate the quality of your life. Your job title does not dictate the quality of your life. But then it says, the quality of your relationships dictates the quality of your life. 
And as I think about that, I think about what the Lord's Supper is teaching us, is that we are not just remembering a moment where Christ poured out himself, but we get to have relationship with the living God. And the Gospel of John allows us to explore the broader implications because we see the environment of the Last Supper in a way that the other Gospels don't. So we see Christ's extended teachings and prayers for the disciples. And in our remembrance of Christ as we take the elements, we're not remembering just a moment. We're remembering a relationship. And then we see Christ's hope for our lives. And Christ offers this wonderful picture of an abundant life. So just hear these words from the five chapters. Christ says in chapter 13, verse 34, I have loved you. In chapter 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. In chapter 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In chapter 16, verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then finally, in chapter 17, verse 26, I may, I may known to them your name, Father, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So it's through this act of remembrance and the elements that we remember, yes, what Christ has done for us, but not just in that moment, but in that relationship. And then as we saw in John, we're further reminded to abide in him, to trust him as the way, the truth, and the life and to find our sustenance in him as the true vine. And then finally, one point, last point of emphasis through the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper reminds us to love one another. And we see this more specifically in Luke and John. The Gospels of Luke and John both point to the commandment to love our neighbor. And in fact, in John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. As we remember the work of Christ through the Lord's Supper, we remember his commandments. And through obedience to his commandments, we discover the pathway to joy. And Luke, when they were arguing about who would be the greatest, Christ tells them, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And then in John, we read that rich commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So I find it remarkable that when considered together, when we pair all the gospel accounts together, we find an intrinsic link between Christ's calling for us to remember his work and also his commandment for us to love. And then finally, in John 17, in that high priestly prayer, we see Christ's prayer for the disciples to be unified. But that unity will only exist where love and humility have a foundation. So as we construct a larger picture of the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper, we see Christ pouring himself out and grounding the disciples in his love and his word and in remembrance. So as I take a broader glance at the Last Supper, I'm reminded of Christ's words in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, which say, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is seemingly upside down logic. I save my life but I lose it. I lose my life and I save it. But, but see what Christ is calling us to here. He's calling us to something bigger, to a newness of life. 
For we must empty our vessels. We have to empty them of our despair, our anger, our fear, our pride, our greed, our indifference. And then when we're emptied out, Christ does something remarkable. He fills us and he makes us new. And he puts in us his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his hope, and his faith. A remarkable thing happened when I was driving here this morning. I must confess, I'm, I'm a guy that turns on Christmas music in early November and don't mind it until after Christmas. But the radio stations this morning had moved beyond Christmas. I turned the radio on, expecting to hear, maybe Mary, did you know? And I heard Bruce Springsteen instead. Quite the surprise. So what we're talking here is the joy of Christmas beyond Christmas. That you can have the joy of what Christmas represents every single day. And I pray that you are discovering and unearthing this joy through your relationship with Christ. That we are restored through Christ's words and work. That we have a richness in life because of our relationship with Christ. And that we may be liberated. Liberated from a non-fulfilling self-pursuit and find a more purposeful and joyful life through loving our neighbor. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, consider not only what Christ has done, but what he wants to do in you and through you.